1: If you enjoy listening to Chorology, then I need your help. Here's why. I
2: create chorology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep chorology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making chorology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey, friends! This is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Quirology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 30. Y'all, this is part two of the Quirology season in review. Uh, we're going through and highlighting uh, episodes that have been chosen by all of you, uh, the listeners, who have reached out and said, these were my favorite episodes, and these were my favorite parts of those episodes. Uh, so we have five more from the second half of the season today. Some Really, really great stuff in here. Uh, it, I, it's it's so hard for me because I want to like pull out highlights from every single episode. But we would be here for another you know thirty hours if we if we really got to do what what I wanted to do. Uh, so all of that to say, like just just go back and. And re-listen through the entire season over the next couple of weeks while we're on break. Uh, I might be doing that as well. I don't know if that's like weird to re-listen to my own podcast, but there's so much good stuff and so much wisdom from every single person that has been on this show. Uh, It's been so incredible. What an incredible year. Uh, before we jump in, a couple things first. A huge thank you to all 30 of the people who are supporters of Quirology on Patreon. Y'all's support is what keeps Quorology going. And I am so, so, so grateful to each and every one of you and uh, the money that you give every month to help keep chorology on the air. Thank you. Uh, also, to everyone who has left reviews and ratings... Uh, my goal is to get to 50 ratings by the end of the year. We're at 46. So if four of you want to head over to your podcast app and leave a rating review of the podcast, I'm sure we can hit that goal in the next couple of weeks. Thank you, thank you, thank you. really helps get the the podcast highlighted in iTunes uh, and in other places. Uh, So if you want to head over to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review or just do that in your podcast app, We only need four more people uh, to hit the the goal for the year. So that would be awesome. Quick announcement. uh, The Gay Christian Network Conference uh, that happens every year is happening in January. January 18th through 21st in Denver, Colorado this year. I'm going to be there. So many people from this podcast are going to be there. The workshop list was announced this last week. And like, it's going to be flipping amazing uh can't wait to see you all there. All you have to do is head over to gaychristian.net to register and I will see you in Denver. Okay, let's go ahead and jump in this first one uh from episode 20 uh with Amber Cantorna uh is all about the difficulties of of living with a non-affirming family and it felt especially apt uh in this holiday season as so many of us either go back to family or miss being around family and the complication of what coming out has had on our lives and especially with our families uh and amber kind of dives into what her process was like with her family uh setting boundaries and then giving some a little a little bit of advice for other people who may be going through that same process with their own families As far as your parents go, I'm I'm trying to remember because I if, like you. You're not in contact with them, are you? Or no, I'm okay? not. Okay. No, we have no contact. Yeah, I, I'd be curious about if you could kind of maybe talk about what that process has been like of of separating from your parents. Because I would imagine there's probably a lot of pain associated mm-hmm. with that, sure. but also for for people who are listening who are kind of maybe in that process of being rejected by their families or not having contact with their parents or like what what advice or comfort or or have you learned kind of in in that separation
3: well you know I came out um in 2012 and the relationship you know my family and I were always very close we were a very tight-knit family growing up But when I came out, that instantly changed and um, our conversations got very awkward, um, way less frequent, um, just very uncomfortable and icy. And, uh, you know, and then over time, it just got worse and worse and worse to the point that they just cut ties completely. And so we had about, you know, two, two and a half years of just this really hard, awkward, um, you know, space where we tried to. Uh, at that point, I was still in a place where I, I was very desperate for their love. I desperately wanted to prove to them that I was still the same daughter they'd always known. And I hadn't changed and I wanted them to love me and I wanted them to be proud of me. And, and so I worked very hard to maintain a relationship with them. Um, but over time it just proved, um, unhealthy. It was just, um, it, it became unhealthy for me, you know, and, and, um, just almost toxic for me to ride this roller coaster of emotions all the time, and it just was very, very hard for me and so I ended up you know kind of having to set boundaries along the way um, of of what I could handle and what i couldn't and and I think what that looks like is different for every family you know and and it comes in stages and it co- but I think it is important to do because your own um safety and your own mental health are of utmost importance. You know, I mean, losing my family and my friends and my church, I mean, I lost everything when I came out. And so that drove me to the edge of suicide. I was, I just didn't think I was going to make it. And I don't think if I hadn't found the support that I did um, through my faith community in Denver, I don't think I would have made it because they are the ones that really rallied around me when I needed people the most, you know, And, and I think one of the hardest realizations for me was I grew up with my mom always telling me, you know, Amber friends will come and go, but your family will always be there for you. And she told me that over and over and over growing up throughout the years. And so then at this time when I needed my family the most, they abandoned me. And so to, to wrestle with that and, and to see, you know, friends taking my family's place and standing in where my family should have been, you know, things like my wedding and things like, um, you know, I had no family at my wedding. And so uh, those people are the ones that stood up and stood in where my family should have been. And so I think finding support like that is critical. Um, it's one of the biggest things that I recommend to people, Previous to coming out and through the coming out process, because I think it makes all the difference to have some safe space where you can um, where you can be yourself, where you can be loved and accepted and celebrated um, just as you deserve to be. And, and then the other thing is setting boundaries um, to keep yourself safe and healthy. And like I said, I think what that looks different looks like it's different for every person and um, the way that that plays out in your family is different. But I think it's an important conversation to have, even though it's hard, like it's super hard to set boundaries with your parents and to, you know, like that's super hard, especially when you grow up under this theology that says, you know, you respect your parents you honor your parents, you let, you know, and in our family disagreeing was seen as disrespectful, you know? And, And so anything like anything like that was disrespectful. So it was really hard for me to get to that point where I had to set boundaries and say, this is not okay. And, and I can't, and so that's really a really hard place to be. Um, But in the long run, it it was absolutely the best thing for me. And, and in the end, like, even with not having contact with my family, as hard as that is, I think it still is been the best thing Uh, out of the options that I have still the best thing, because to continue to wrestle through this place where it's just agony, and you're not getting anywhere. And it's, It just um, squashes your self-worth, you know, um, can really wear you down over time. So uh, I think those are two of the biggest things I recommend to people as far as um, setting boundaries and having supportive community through that process. Right. Yeah. And I'm
2: thinking about that boundary setting because... It's, it's almost like a role reversal of where you're mm-hmm, having to like mm-hmm. be parents to your parents almost of like, because I, I feel like that's such a parental role almost to say like, this is okay. This is not okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's so hard it, to do.
3: It is. And my parents were like, this is so unlike you. Is somebody feeding you these lines? Like, because it was a side they had never seen of me, you know? So it really took them off guard and they didn't know how to react because... I had never really bucked against the flow like that before, you know? And so it was, it was a very different side of me that they had to see. But, you know, really when it comes down to it, you shouldn't have to be, you shouldn't have to protect your parents from the truth. Like they should be the ones that are fighting for you, you know? And so you need to stand up for your own mental health and safety um, in the long run because you shouldn't have to be the parent to your parents, you know? And, and yet in some ways we do, we, you know, we do have to, so.
2: Setting boundaries and finding supportive community. Like, I, I think it sounds so easy when it's said that way, but in reality, like that is such a difficult uh, and often heartbreaking process. Uh, and especially I think as, as we enter the holidays, as we enter the time of year where what is missing and lacking in those family relationships just often feels like it's on full display. Um, I hope that each of you uh, will find some time and some ability to just be so careful and care-filled with yourselves. May you find some time some time to do that because this is this is a difficult a difficult difficult season for so many of us. The second highlight uh which is from episode 23 with Alex G. So many of you reached out to me after this episode and were like, "Yes, uh when when she talks about uh feeling like she was hypersexual, uh like there was something wrong with her. Uh not even considering that it might be something uh to do with her sexual orientation, but just being like, "What?" What is wrong with me? Uh, That is an experience that I think so many people have had, uh, especially growing up in conservative Christian environments where sexuality was not even talked about, uh, where it was just such a a fear-based system to have to deal with all of these feelings uh, kind of by yourself. Uh, And Alex gets into that a lot here. That's so yeah. that's so interesting, because I feel like, you know, so often we hear the story of like, I found I figured this out about myself, and then I had to reconcile it with my faith. <laughs> Whereas for yeah. you, it was like, I explored my faith. And all of a sudden, like, I realized that I was by like, <laughs>
4: it's, <laughs> yes, it's absolutely <laughs> insane. And I hear that story all the time. Like, that's typically, I think what happens. And for me, um, you know, like, i had been in two pretty serious, uh, heterosexual relationships, um, or yeah, uh, in my life. And this kind of, uh, other side of me, I was able to, I mean, there would be years at a time where I would just be like, I'm not going to look at that. And that thing doesn't exist. It sometimes does, but it's definitely in secret. Uh, and so I just, I, I think for me, I didn't even know really what bisexual meant. I had no one to look up to growing up who was an out bisexual person who could who I saw myself reflected in, and so I think that really was the reason why I didn't think that what was going on inside of me had anything to do with orientation. I thought that it meant I was hypersexual. And so and so I thought that that was just like a human part of me that made me weird and gross and dirty and that I had to hide. And so I never was like, Hmm, I might not be straight. I was, I was always just thinking, Hmm, why am I so overly sexual? And I am really ashamed of myself. Um, and so I don't know. It's, it's really interesting. Like, I don't think I knew, I feel, I don't think I would have had the language for it, but you know, it wasn't until I kind of, you know, I left home for a long period of time uh, I moved out of my house, uh, when I was what, I think 20. Um, I grew up in Colorado and actually, which is really funny. I just learned this recently. I grew up in one of the top 10 most conservative cities in America. And Ooh. I did not know <laughs> until like I found it in an article somewhere and I was like, you've got to be kidding but it makes so much sense now. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, I grew up in a household where, um, honestly, anything regarding, gosh, just sexuality, uh, uh, accepting that we are, you know, sexual beings or uh, it just it wasn't talked about. It was really uncomfortable. Um, I remember we would I mean, it would go so far as we would be watching like, a Disney Channel original movie, and the two main characters would kiss at the end, and my dad, like, would, like, close his eyes and be like, oh, why do they have to do that? And it was just so, anything sexual was just taboo and gross, and we don't talk about that, and you just don't do it. Like, you just don't. (laughs) It's this huge secret. And so I just didn't know how to process that part of myself in a healthy way. You know, everything I learned about sexuality or sex or anything like that. I learned over the internet and I was always in, you know, in secret because I was taught that it's supposed to be in secret. Um, yeah. And so, you know, and my, my faith really at the time, I wouldn't say it was my faith either. Like I would say it was my family's faith. Um, but that really, that was, that played a huge part in my, I guess, fear to be I guess, just not a perfect Christian. Like, I would get asked questions like, do you know where you're going to go? Like, if you died right now, do you know where you would go? <laughs> well, you better figure that out. Like, at, like, 12 years old. Um, And so, you know, it was just very fear-based and very uh, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Like, not necessarily, like, <laughs> well thought out, but just kind of like, okay, this is what you think, and this is how it goes, and you don't question it because you'll probably go to hell. And so that was just so unhealthy. And it wasn't until, you know, I had been out of my, uh, that Christian, that kind of evangelical Christian culture for a long enough time, uh, that I was, you know, I, I mean, I moved to LA, so (laughs) it's like, as, it's like, as like progressive liberal as it gets in these, in the States. Um, just, just, I guess, normalizing the fact that I'm a sexual being. And the first time I heard that I was in therapy, because the way I would bring it up about my, uh, wondering if I was questioning my orientation as I used to say, well, I used to think I used to wonder if I was gay. I don't like, I used to, you know, have those questions and my therapist was like, well, you're a sexual being, Alex. And let me explain this to you. And I was offended when she said that I was like, are you, you're telling me that I'm like me, Alex, like I'm a really sexual person. Why are you saying that? Like how do you why do you think that? I was so offended. Um, it really helped me start a conversation of just normalizing that, like biologically. Yeah. And that was when I was able to just kind of I was just once you once I got rid of the fear of that, I was able to start loving myself better. Um, I was able to, you know, be more compassionate towards myself and towards other people. Um and you know, I grew up demonizing like the LGBTQ community, and and once I once I made friends in that community. I mean, you know, once you know someone who is something that you have been afraid of your whole life, like it changes everything. You know, you you have a face to a quote unquote issue. Um, And then you start to question everything. It's like, well, this person's an incredible person and shows me Jesus more than some of my evangelical Christian friends and family do. How in the world is this this person not fully embraced by God? I don't get it.
2: This next highlight uh, comes from the very next episode, episode 24, with Sue Ann Shaw. This is one of my favorites, uh, because Sue Ann gets into that question that I think so many of us often get asked, why isn't your identity in Christ? Why are you labeling yourself as LGBT? Uh, what about your identity in Christ? Uh, and Suan breaks that down in a way that is so incredibly helpful. Uh, here it is. Uh, That's really interesting because like I mean you're you're talking about identity and so many of these different intersecting identities and and you just you just presented a workshop uh, last week at the Reformation Projects conference in Chicago, um, all about naming intersecting identities in Christ. Um it, Kind of talking about like, and and I've touched on this on the podcast before, but that question that so many people ask, like, why are you putting your identity in so and so label? Why aren't you putting it in Christ? Um, I'd, I'd love it if I mean, this is the work that you do talking about that. I'd love if you could maybe unpack those ideas of intersecting identities uh in tandem with our identities as people of faith.
5: Yeah. I think that um something like so I did this exercise in the in the workshop. It's actually a icebreaker called sorts and mingles. And if you've ever played it, you can basically you, you can sort or mingle and and you get in a, either in a line or you can get into different groups. So the, the like Spoiler alert, it shows you how uh, flawed the use of binaries to arrange your life are. And so we tend to, in you know, American, Western, modern society, really depend heavily on on binaries. So uh, I, I've been on some other podcasts, Asian America, Tiny Revolution with Kevin Garcia. We've talked about my documentary, Juan Dao which is about bicultural identity is like an Asian American, Taiwanese American experience. And for me, uh, one of the things that I came out of with that project, that is a big part of how I think of identity is pushing back at these ideas of false binaries. So, you know, people will say, are you Taiwanese? Or are you American? As if those two things are mutually exclusive, or that it's on a scale, and that the more more Asian I am, the less American I am. And this presupposes the idea that these are on the same like level that it is a it's a false binary. So um, I would say it's, it's not a question of like my so like my identity in Christ I'm putting my identity in Christ. Well, it presupposes that me naming any other kind of like parts of myself, my gender, my sexuality, my race, my ethnicity, my culture, it presupposes that Any of those things is in conflict with who my identity in Christ is, as opposed to thinking of my identity in Christ as, for instance, like, as I talked about earlier, the foundation upon which a house is built, but it's not a, it's not a house, right? So the rock is the, is the foundation upon which everything else can stand. And without, you know, with, if it's just sinking sand, like truly all of the other parts of yourself will fall down, but you also can't live on a rock, that's not a house, right? Jesus calls us to build our house on the rock, right? So we, we, you know, like our bodies are temples of God, they're houses for the Holy Spirit. And in the same way that we nurture our bodies and take care of them physically, also, the way we construct our identities in a spiritual metaphysical sense, they're houses too, right? So, Like you know, we talk a lot about Gnosticism um, in the modern American churches. It comes up, especially in the Reformed communities that I'm a part of. Yeah, and um, and this is how you avoid Gnosticism is through an embodied spirituality, right? Uh, And knowing that you are not just like this ambivalent spirit soul thing that hovers. You are an embodied being. You are incarnate. You are made in the image of God in a body. So how that body matters. It's the house, right? And truly, like, you know, people say, like, home, you know, home is where the heart is, right? But the heart has to live in your body. And, um, and you know, you would never look at the boards of the house, the drywall. You would never say, oh, this is what makes a home. But also, it's there's something more to it that the house somehow holds the home, right? It's not only the sum of its parts, but at the same time, having form makes something real that otherwise would just be an abstraction.
2: I love how Su Ann just like brings in scripture uh, into that explanation of like Christ is the rock that we build the house on, but we still have to build the house uh, and our identities are a part of that house. Uh, so good. Uh, This next highlight is from episode 26 with Trey Pearson. Uh, Trey gets into the role of grief in coming out uh, and how we don't often talk about the hard parts of coming out. Uh, And this was a really transformative conversation, I think, uh, for me and for a lot of other people to just acknowledge that grief. Like I said, I've been I've been listening to the album and like when you sent it to me a couple weeks ago and I listened through it the first time, like I, I was in tears listening to it uh, um, because, it, and, and this ties into that grief part, but there there are portions of some of the songs, that, especially in the last song, A Good Grief Part 2, where yeah. you, you sing, they say the truth will set you free, but there have been losses along the way. Like that's so much ties up that experience of coming out and, and freedom and yet grieving the very real losses that come with that process. Um, Yeah. I don't think we often,
6: I don't think we talk about enough
2: of like the loss part of coming out and it needs to be grieved. It needs to be grieved.
6: Yeah. No, I think um, that song, I actually wrote that, Uh, part two before I wrote uh, part one. (laughs) And I had sat down, um, I had sat down, you know, just with a guitar in my living room at my house. And I was, you know, thinking about a lot of these things as I, as I do. And uh, that one, uh, like a few of the songs on the, on the EP, I, I literally just, felt destroyed emotionally and um probably spent more time crying than i did writing the song but it just like it just sort of that and the hey jesus song just kind of poured out all very quickly and um and some of these songs take you know kind of take longer than others to write and and every once in a while a song just sort of happens uh very quickly and it all just kind of comes to you at once and i feel like both of those songs sort of did that. And, you know, um, I wrote them and then I spent hours just bawling my eyes out, uh, overwhelmed with the emotion of, of what those meant. And, uh, yeah, I think I've spent a lot of time thinking about grieving, uh, over these last two years. And I, you know, I, it's like you said, I think people are scared to talk about that because people are scared that they'll think that means you're not happy or you're not, you know, like, oh, see, you know, something's wrong with him, you know, like, you know, and and it's like, well, yeah, but the thing that's wrong is that it took this long to finally be able to accept myself. And people have no idea what kind of mental damage or what kind of emotional damage that does on your life to spend that much of your life uh, suppressed and not being able to accept who you are. I mean, it just, it's a, it's a traumatic experience. You know, I don't know how to put it any less, any lighter than that, but it's just like, I've spent the last two years processing the trauma that I faced suppressing myself for my entire life. And that is a lot to process. And, um, I think, gosh, yeah, I am the happiest I've ever been in my life. Uh, I'm having the most fun I've ever had in my life. I feel the most free I've ever felt in my entire life. Uh, but I've also lost a lot of things that have mattered to me for my entire life. And, uh, including like, you know, the closeness that I had with, uh, family and with friends and with church and, uh, to sort of have that your whole life and, uh, to all of a sudden have that all like you realize, I mean, for me, I think I just realized that it started to hit me harder and harder over several weeks and maybe even a couple months. But, uh, I think one day, uh, the first time I said out loud to someone that I was gay, which was, uh, two years ago. Um, first time I ever said it out loud to somebody. Uh, and I I don't even think I said it that way. I said, I think I might be gay. And as soon as I said that, I, I said it to, uh, I call a pastor friend of mine. Uh, do you know Jonathan Martin? Uh, he's like an author blogger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, sort of a, uh, that's another long story, but, uh, (laughs) he had shared, he had shared with me some things in his life, like that kind of a few months before that, uh, that he was going through and we had just started becoming friends actually. And it's not like at the time, uh, that he was like one of my closest friends or anything. Uh, and I had other people that were affirming that I felt like I probably could have reached out to, but I think, I think there was a part of me that was like scared to reach out to anybody I was too close to. Cause I was still scared of this rejection, this idea that, Oh, well I realized that they affirm other people, but I'm married to a woman. What if they're mad at me, you know? And, um, and so I don't know, I felt like safe, uh, reaching out to him. So I did. And, uh, you know I started talking to him about my whole life over a couple hours and for the first time in my entire life I said out loud to him I think I might be gay and in that you know like I mean first of all like it just like to say it out loud felt like the most surreal feeling in the world uh every emotion you can possibly think from shame to guilt to freedom to hope to all these things just came overflowing and you know of course uh to finally unpin that uh for the first time in your life is such an emotional thing and um I think I realized that night that my life was never going to look the same again and and so yes I am I'm super grateful for this freedom but I also realized that uh that that there's a lot that needs to be grieved and I need to allow myself to do it and uh you know I've I've talked about this a little bit, but, um, Rob Bell, who's, Mm. who's a friend of mine, he, uh, has his uh, kind of podcast as well. And, Mm -hmm. um, he had this episode called the good grief that really inspired, uh, those songs, but also just like that, that was kind of my mantra, uh, over those, I mean, over those first several months, uh, of coming out to myself and my family, uh, it was, it was to allow myself to grieve because I knew that I had a lot that I needed to. And um, every time I was able to tell somebody that I was gay, uh, it felt more freeing and more liberating. And um, I finally came to a place where I felt so much joy and peace. And um, honestly, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I could have found that joy and peace if I didn't allow myself to go through that uh grieving process and uh um I don't know when you spend this much of your life not accepting yourself there's a lot there to grieve and -hmm. process so yeah
2: I think it's so important that we acknowledge the hard parts of coming out, too, uh, because just because things are hard doesn't mean that we're not doing better. Uh, there's there's the complexity that we can hold both the grief and the enormous weight coming off uh, uh, in in that process. Uh, those, those things are going to be held together. Uh, this, this next and, and final final one, uh, highlight is, is from episode 28 with Laura Beth Taylor uh, talking about uh, authenticity and uh, filters uh, and, and how uh, being filtered doesn't necessarily mean going back into the closet.
1: No, we don't have to go back into the closet. And also... We don't have to carry the closet door everywhere we go. Um, one of my mottos for this year has been allowing the becoming and just exploring what, you know, what that means as far as personal growth and personal exploration. And um, the uh, and part of what that is, is existing in the moment um, so that... Not every single moment is an out-of-the-closet moment. It doesn't mean it's an in-the-closet moment. Um, You know, and I I even use the the word box instead of closet a lot. I I don't always have to be thinking out of the box or in the box. Sometimes there's just not a box. Sometimes we just are. And so um, it's not while it may feel for a moment like we might have to step into the closet to be sensitive to our environment, um, you know, if, uh, thinking about it this way, not, not everyone in the room is addressing their issues of their sexuality. Not everyone in the room is addressing issues of gender. Um, now we find a lot that gender kind of comes up because all of a sudden, in social environments, men and women will split and go two different directions. <laughs> and um, you know, which way do these people expect me to go? Um, the uh, but um, yeah, being sensitive to being sensitive to where other people are, um, and I'm phrasing this. I'm, I'm working on phrasing this a little bit be, be, because of what you were saying about that feeling of being back in the closet. Um, the way that I present myself um, in the context of the church, in the context of a faith-based community, um, will shape the perception of that closet. So if I allow the people around me to have that journey, if, um, if I allow them—you know, when we're talking about parents and John Pavlitz— Coined this phrase, the second closet. Um, when we come out of our closet as LGBT people, LGBTQ people, the, our parents and family, and um, you know sometimes close circles, they go into their closet, and then you, you know they're not going to tell their extended family, they're not going to tell their coworkers, <clears throat> um, they're not going to tell their their churches until they're ready to come out of that second closet. And so um, allowing them the space for that journey is is just as important as it was for us to have the, the space for our journey. Um, and and the church is no, no different. To allow them the room to come out of their second closet and embrace us with that is, and that can sometimes be painful, and it, sometimes it might mean that we disengage for a while. Um, One of the reasons that I started getting more into advocacy work was because I found that I had a knack for being in those spaces and for being on that journey with people. Um, I found that I would go and I do a lot of work at coffee shops just one-on-one across the table. And I would go and just sit and these pastors would, we'd have a, you know, just a, a casual introduction of a conversation and then all of a sudden they would start asking questions but then answering the questions for themselves and they were just and it wasn't that I was I didn't have to go ask any questions I didn't have to answer any questions I was the question and when I allowed myself to just be the question and let them have their own little dialogue here the conversation and the relationship made so much more progress than when I stepped in to try and debate or convince or argue. And, you know, I just let them wrestle with it in front of me. And and sometimes would step in and if they were, you know, looking for a word or looking for some language or if they said something that could be offensive, I would out of respect for them, not I mean, I'd educate them along the way. But um, and there were times that they would get to a point that it was like, no, I, I just I just can't. I'm not there yet, or I don't want to be there, or I'm not going to ever be where you want me to be. And, and that was okay. We had to accept that and part ways amiably in that sense. But um, yeah, allowing people to have that journey just to be the question.
2: Y'all, that's it. That's the end of season one of Chorology. Uh, we're gonna be on break for the next two weeks. Chorology season two is launching January 9th, uh, so just a couple weeks away. So excited for what's in store for season two of the podcast. Uh, as always, if you have ideas of what you'd like to see covered on Chorology, ideas of people you'd like to hear from on the podcast, please reach out to me. I always love uh, hearing of people that I am not aware of. uh, And there are so many amazing people doing such great work out in the world. Uh, So yeah, definitely, definitely reach out. To close out the season, I thought it would be great uh, to end with a prayer from Kenji Karamitsu and his booklet of uncommon prayer uh, in in, in his episode, episode 18. Uh, So I hope that you all have a wonderful holiday season I will see you all, or I guess talk to you all again on January 9th. Uh, And here is Kenji uh, and his prayer for justice. Peace to you all.
0: Um, So this is called A Prayer for Justice. God, make us instruments of your justice. Where there is a false and untenable peace, let us sow dissent. Where there is injustice, fury. Where there is oppression, hope where there is false fluorescence, profound darkness, where there is social depression, life, where there is crime and poverty, a sustainable economic infrastructure. Grant that we may not so much seek to be uplifted as to uplift, to be seen as to see others. For it is in protesting the sin of the system that we can more fully acknowledge our own sin, It is in demanding justice of the powerful that we live out God's demands for us. And it is in rejecting the American dream that we are born into God's dream. Amen.